if you could open your copy of God's word to Micah chapter 2. Today we're going to look at Micah chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 and I've titled this sermon Poetic Justice. Poetic Justice. Would you read God's word with me? Micah starts out with this. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Thus reads the word of God. May it write its truths on our hearts. Over the last few years, I have become a lot more acquainted with leukemia than I ever wanted to. Certain life circumstances would give me a deeper knowledge in that category um, that I never cared for, but I can explain it to you. Uh, Leukemia happens when something in your blood goes wonky. Let's put it that way has to do with cells, and I know that you're one living organism, but you have tons and tons, millions and millions, maybe we could say trillions and trillions of cells. And all it takes is one bad cell to ruin everything. has to do with white blood cells. If you're a biology major, you know what I'm talking about. If you studied HR like me, you just learned all this as soon as it came up. You learn it now. now. White blood cells can go bad, and what happens with leukemia is that your body caves in on itself. One bad cell quickly turns into multiple bad cells. And those bad cells continue to multiply into more and more and more bad cells. They inadvertently take out good cells from your body. And before you know it, you have a life-threatening emergency on your hands. You have a disease. You have something that needs immediate attention. You have something that's not to be toyed with or played around with. You have something that needs to be addressed in the moment. I learned that very quickly with my daughter when she was diagnosed two years ago. And when you have a situation like that, you need to take care of it fast. Your body is turning on its own self. And so you need immediate attention. And what do they do? Well, you get what's called chemotherapy. Probably know what that is. And I guess chemotherapy for dummies, not calling you that, just saying this is probably what's in the book. Chemotherapy for dummies is a full reset of your blood. In the first month of treatment, what needs to happen is that all of your blood cells need to be flushed out for your body to create new ones. That's how you treat leukemia. 
Now, there's a series of years after that in which you watch the progress and you continue to take some treatment. But most of the work is done within that first month. You have to annihilate the bad cells and hope for reproduction of good cells. The bad cells have pretty much done away with good cells. And if it's not treated, you die. That's how that works. Unless it's treated quickly, there's no hope. In the book of Micah, we've been talking about judgment that's coming and justice that's coming. And it needs to be immediate. It needs to happen now. And the question that we haven't been able to ask quite yet is, why? Why is this judgment coming? What's happening in Israel that merits the kind of judgment that we've been talking about? And we've seen it somewhat on a macro level. We've talked about idolatry. We've talked about the sin of Samaria or the sin of Jerusalem. But we've left everything up there. And now what we're going to find in the book of Micah is that we're going to get into the weeds of this whole thing. What is it that's happening in Israel that merits such a quick response from Yahweh? Well, what's happening is that Israel is caving in on itself. Israel is, is tearing itself apart. It might have started with a few bad people, but it's turned into bad people dominating the land. Bad people who we call here, or who Micah calls here, oppressors. People who devise wickedness. And people who look forward to doing evil. And not only that, but abusing other people. And those people aren't in short supply anymore in Israel. Those people run the town. And what God needs to do is address it right away. God will not let his people go forward like this. God is going to push a hard reset on Israel. God is going to ensure that this is accounted for immediately. Judgment is coming, and now we're going to see why. We're going to see in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, two sections that remind us that God deals with wickedness swiftly. It's not a question of if God will judge, but when will God judge? And God will take care of things in a proper manner. All sin has its judgment. In fact, we can say sin entices judgment. Sin necessitates judgment. It calls for judgment and it demands judgment. And here, Micah prepares to call that sin out by name and relay that message again to us that judgment is coming. What is that sin? Well, the sin in Israel, as we will find here, is covetousness. These people covet one another. People who have ascended to a certain status in society have now taken it out on everyone else. And that sin is now rampant in the land. They've oppressed the middle class, they've oppressed the poor class, and now they've run the town, but God will not let them get away with it. Their sin will now be exposed and their judgment will be explained to them. This is a fair warning, not only to them, but also to us. As we read through this text and we study this text, we ought to be reminded that the sin that incurs this kind of judgment on God's people 
is the same kind of judgment to expect if this is true of your life. If covetousness is your sin, that sin is damnable to hell. And that sin merits judgment. There is escape for that, as we all know. We find that in Christ Jesus. But this makes you assess your heart. In Christ, there is no heart for covetousness. In sin, there is. And so where do you land? Let's look with Micah. Let's see these two sections. And let's explore just how deep the sin of covetousness covetousness was in Israel. And just how bad that judgment will be for those who persist in it. I've broken this up into two sections. So we'll see verses 1 and 2 as the oppressed exposed. And verses 3 to 5 as the judgment explained. First, looking at verses 1 through 2, we'll see the oppressed exposed. We start out with a very simple word here. Woe. And it's not like we ever use woe, which typically typically tends to be like, oh, wow, thoroughly surprised. That's not what Mike is doing here. This word is often used at funerals when the guy's already dead. That's when you say, whoa. The point of this is Micah sets out from the very beginning as though I'm speaking to dead men walking. Woe as in, hey, you're in trouble. And not only that, but you're already dead. Listen to this message because the judgment is as sure as these words. Micah is going to begin to specify what sins have prompted this kind of response from God. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. First and foremost here, we see this group of people in Israel who have an appetite for wickedness. And it's not just simply that they are wicked or do wicked things. It's that they plan them. They give themselves to orchestrating them. They give themselves to teasing it out. It's not only that they have a habit for evil, but they craft evil. They're craftsmen and their craft is wickedness. Their wickedness is thoughtful. Their, their wickedness is calculated. It's measured. It's, it's, it's all been planned out. They don't sin at random. They follow their own recipes. They've been thinking about this all night long, is what Micah is saying. They say, he says that here as he says they work evil on their beds. Some have tried to take that way too literally. That's not the point. The point is they think about this as they fall asleep. You know what? They probably think about this so much as they fall asleep that it comes up in their dreams. They wake up thinking, you know what? That's actually a really good idea. For them to find rest is to think of all the things they could do that are evil. To scheme new plans of wickedness is their comfort and their lullaby. 
Sweet dreams at night means a new plan to live out tomorrow. And the morning doesn't hamper their plans. The fact that the sun shines in the morning doesn't tell them to hide away or to wait for another time or opportunity. Light only entices them to come out all the more. It doesn't delay their efforts. It only prompts it, which is the opposite of evil doing. It's the opposite of how it's typically even talked about in Scripture. We could look at Yahweh's response to Job in Job 38, verses 12 and 13. Here, the Lord asks Job, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? What's he saying? He's saying that when the sun rises, when the light dawns, the wicked go away. When a new day comes, justice comes. And that would have been common even in this day. When the light dawned, justice would have reigned. Kings and rulers and judges would have come out to begin the day's work of accounting for all the evil that's taken place in the land. But not so in this day. In this day, when the sun comes up, there is more evil to be had. There's more evil to be done. And it's because these oppressors are part of the system. I know you don't probably like the term systematic injustice, but that's what's happening here. It's all interwoven into the way that this place works. It has taken over everything. And so those who rule, those who govern, those who have a say in people's lives are the ones committing this sin. We see that in the end of verse 1. When the morning dawns, they perform their evil because it is in, their pow- in the power of their hand. It is in the power of their hand. The Hebrew actually literally puts this out to say it is in, it is in the, the power of, of their hand unto their God, so to speak. They do this because they're worshiping their own God, and their own God is their own self. This is an act of worship, and it's an act of worship to appease their own appetites. That's what Micah is saying. These oppressors, these workers of wickedness, these these people who devise and scheme wicked plans, who wait all night and cannot anticipate the moment enough when they can arise out of bed and fulfill all that they've planned, worship no one else but themselves. Even as God has delineated a time for evildoers to go away and to hide, these guys step forward arrogantly. And do all that they please. All they see is opportunity. Why? Because they don't worship. Not rightfully. They don't worship the God who made them. They don't worship the God of heaven. They have forgotten the God who redeemed them out of Egypt and brought them into their land. Who has asked them and commanded them to love their neighbor as their self. Not only a New Testament thing, by the way. Just read the book of Leviticus. There's lots of laws in there. Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. And they've forgotten the law because they've forgotten their Lord. Where God is forgotten, evil will abound. And I think that really helps us, or at least it should. All you need to do right now, if you pulled out your phone, was open up Twitter, and you will see there's a lot of bad things happening in the world. And it's not a surprise to us. 
It's not a shock to a believer to see that. As horrible as that might be, and as much response as that might prompt from our own hearts, it's not a surprise to us. Because where God is not revealed, sin abounds. Where God is not worshipped, sin will reign. And we see that all around us. And Micah saw that in his day. And what's true of us in a society that has no fear of the Lord was true of a day and a time in which these are the people of God. They were given God's law to, to rule the land and to tell them what to do and how to live and how to treat each other. And even they turned away from that. Their sin is ever before them, just as the sins of the world are ever before us. They've replaced the worship of God with worship of self. Their greed, coupled with their ability to work things out for themselves, has enabled all of their self-interests. And this has led to all kinds of wickedness. Wickedness that's explained for us in verse 2. Here's their sin. They covet. Now, he expands on that, and he tells you much more about how they do that. They covet fields, and they seize them, and houses, and they take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. But the emphasis here is on their coveting. The emphasis here is on the disposition of their heart, the why they do what they do. But what they do is evil. But what they do is evil because it's in their hearts to do it. This is important because it relates to you. You also can covet. And your lack of opportunity to do the things that they do doesn't diminish the judgment of God upon those who covet. Do you get that? You too wrestle with an insatiable desire to be pleased, to serve yourself, to gain what's not yours to take what's not yours, to desire what's not yours, to desire things that you don't have and can't have. You struggle with that too, and God's judgment is upon that sin. These people have forgotten it, and so often so have we. Again, these people have an enablement and an opportunity to really live out those desires to take advantage of those desires, to do as, as they please. They do so at will. They take people's fields. They seize them. Seize is kind of a step above steal, if you're understanding that. It's not that you break in and you do so stealthily. It's that you're able to forcibly, even with the law in hand, say, hey, I'm coming to take this. It's the concept of foreclosure. It's right in the eyes of the law. That's how these people planned out their evil. They made it so that it would be right, even in their legal system, to do these things. And in doing these things, they stripped people of their identity. They seized their land. They took their houses. They oppressed a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Now, you need to take a step back in order to understand how bad this really is. You need to understand how Israel got to where they are to understand just how far this has fallen from God's commands. This is occurring amongst God's people and in total and blatant objection and rejection to God's law. God, when he delivered Israel out of Egypt, gave them two things, law 
and land. Law and land. And primary in that law, or one of the primary tenets of that law, was you shall not covet. And by no mistake at all, the first thing after that is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. It goes on to express later, in case you didn't get the point, or anything that is your neighbor's. Not only that, but he also promised them a land. There's a law and there's a land. You can look at Numbers 36 or Leviticus 25. God gave his people a land. And not only that, but God also allotted that land to different families, different tribes, different people. Everyone had a stake in it. And it was given and granted by God. You didn't just take what you wanted. You didn't just take what you felt was best. You didn't just take what you thought you want, what, what you thought was the best portion of the land, God granted it. And so this is a big deal because when these people covet after fields and seize them and take people's houses and their inheritance, they're not only affronting God's law, they're affronting God's process. God has given this. God has granted this to every family in Israel. This land is sacred. It's God's land to give and no one's to take. It would be one thing if someone came in and took it from them, but for God's own people to do this to each other, that's unheard of. And God has to address this immediately. One commentator put it this way for us. The economic and social ideal of ancient Israel was of a nation of free landowners, not debt slaves, sharecroppers or hired workers, securing possession as a grant from Yahweh of enough land to keep all their families, never to be broken. If that's the case, these guys have a big problem on their hands. You, you don't affront God and get away with it. You don't mess up what God is doing and somehow sweep it under the rug. You can't do that in God's economy. And so the oppression here that has been exposed to us is of a people that is covetous, and not only that, but ruthless. And not to anyone else, not to another nation, not to some other people, but to their own people. And this own people is God's people. This is a complete affront to everything God had purposed for the people of Israel. All of this crumbles because of a root problem. They covet, they desire, they lust, they envy, they lack gratitude. They're driven by an emotional appreciation for things above a gratitude for what God has done for them. Note that before they could defraud their neighbor, they broke God's law. They deny the way that God has asked them to live and now they affront each other. And that's always how it works. That man has affronted each other, that we have horizontal problems is an indicator that we have vertical problems. Do you get what I mean by that? That we have issues with one another means that is often the case because we have issues with God. These people have broken God's law, and the only natural consequence of that is that they would abuse and not live rightly with one another. 
And for every act of injustice under the sun, including this kind of oppression, we then recognize not merely that none of it's new under the sun, but what's more, that all of us are guilty of this kind of sin. This idea of covetousness, of desiring things that don't belong to us, it's an ancient problem, and it's also our problem. Some have taken wrongly, but some have taken wrongly, but all have wanted. Some have been able to live out this covetousness by seizing things, but all of us have harbored those things in our own hearts. It's not like you can scroll through Instagram without coveting, or maybe you have. I doubt it. You don't watch HDTV because you just like it. You want that house. You want that living room. You want that JoJo Gaines open concept. I don't watch it. You don't just you don't just look at all the updates that are going on in your social media and think absolutely nothing. We're always living in comparison. We're always desiring something else. We're always looking at something and wondering, what if we had that? Uh, What if I had that promotion? What if I had that grade? What if I had that relationship? What if I had that girlfriend or boyfriend instead? What if I was the one getting married? We all deal with that. And covetousness is such a big deal because it's a form of idolatry. It's idolatry that exists in the present, in the present of us wanting to do whatever is best for ourselves and the best interest of ourselves, not others or God. We all deal with that. And Christian here, you need to remind yourself when you're in moments like that, that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That the Lord is your portion and nothing else can take that place. That your satisfaction comes from an unmerited, steadfast love that God has for you. And that's sufficient for all of your needs. Nothing should be able to rob you of that joy. The reason that these people struggle with such a huge case of this covetousness is because they've lost sight of that. They're worried about land and possession and not the God who has granted them this land. They're worried about taking from their neighbor and not the God who's delivered and redeemed them. They only worship self and not God. Covetousness is not only prohibited, it's lost sight of the value and the worth of God. That's why it's such a big deal. And that's why it necessitates a judgment. Now we look at the judgment explained in verses 3 to 5. We've seen the oppressed exposed, their sin is ever before them. And now we see what God's response is to that. His judgment explained. Notice here, we have this transition, therefore, thus says the Lord. This isn't Micah's take on what we should do when we see oppression. This isn't Micah's take on what we should do when we see injustice. This isn't Micah's take on how God should handle covetous people. God steps into the scene and speaks. God has something to say. And when God has something to say, we all perk our ears up and we listen. And he tells us so much by saying, behold, listen up, pay attention, write this down, 
And don't forget it. Against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. There is another play on words here. We've learned a lot about that in our time already in Micah. And here's some more from Micah. It's pretty punny. I, I literally meant that. These evildoers devise wickedness. They plan it. They scheme it. And now Micah uses that same word to describe how God will judge them. It's as if to say, oh, so you plan wickedness. Okay, well, I plan disaster upon you. You can plan all you want, but you won't be able to stop my plans. This is what Yahweh's response is. I see what you're planning. I'm planning something too. And I plan to devise a disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. You shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. You understanding what kind of ramifications that is? Sure, as much as you plan, here's my plan. Absolute disaster, calamity, evil, bad, terrible. The word disaster here is the same word as wickedness used above. But now it means terror. It means calamity. It means of a terrible judgment that's going to befall these people. And it's a judgment that's inescapable. You cannot remove your necks from this. It's the imagery of putting oxen in a yoke. They're not getting out of that. In the same way, these people will not get out of what God has planned for them. It's humiliating. You shall not walk haughtily. You won't be strutting your step anymore. You won't be feeling big time anymore. You won't think you've made it anymore. You're not worth anything anymore. I will bring you low. As much as you have planned against my own people and your own people, I have planned against you. Something that is disastrous, something that's inescapable, and something that's utterly humiliating. For Israel, this would come from Assyria. We've talked about this too. A ruthless empire that is approaching and orchestrated by God himself to humble his people. They would remove Israel from their land, take them away from what's been promised to them, lead them out into exile, and utterly humiliate those who were once saved out of Egypt. So humiliating and devastating will this judgment be that those who are to take them away will even taunt them. God's, the, the enemies of God's people will even lord it over them. You see that in verse 4? In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. They taunt them about their situation. They speak as though they're them. And they say, we've been utterly ruined. The imagery here is of a, of a wolf that's completely mangled and distraught its prey, ripping flesh from bone. We have annihilated this people. We have been annihilated is what they taunt Israel to say. 
He changes the portion of my people. Just as the oppressors have changed up the way that God divvied up the land. So now God will divvy up the land amongst God's en- God's own enemies. That's the kind of destruction coming for this oppressed people group. He removes it from me. God takes away what this, this land, this promise to them. Not only so, but then he gives it to an apostate, a pagan. Not those who worship Yahweh. Those who worship idols. Those who worship other gods. Those who have given themselves to all kinds of pagan worship and practices. Things that degrade and dishonor the glory of God. This is who now gets the portion of God's land. This is who now takes over the land that was once for God's people. And this was promised to them. In Leviticus, when God lays out what he desires for his people, there are two ways this could go. Blessing or curse. And if you obey God's law, then you're blessed. But if you disobey and if you disregard and if you go away from what God has planned for you, there is cursing. There is judgment. And God promises in Leviticus 26, 14 to 33, you can read that in your own time. God promises to give this land over to the nations if Israel doesn't cooperate with this covenant. Evidently, Israel does fall short. And if you ask yourself, well, does God really take it seriously? Absolutely, absolutely he does. Absolutely he does. He judges this people. He gives away their land. He does it in a way that's inescapable and humiliating. He does it in a way that hands over what was once promised to them to pagans. But this isn't even the worst of it. Here, we've been reading through this poem so far, verses 1 to 4, that now turns to prose. And in verse 5, we find the very worst of this judgment. Again, he says, therefore, but it's all only as in to orient your heart around the truth and the extent of what this judgment is really like. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Now, for an Israelite, that was supposed to make it really clear. And for you and me, you're like, I don't understand what that means. And that's okay. My job is to explain it to you. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. If you're understanding this rightly, you actually understand there's a semblance of hope here. There's a coming day where the assembly of the Lord will cast lot again for who gets the land. The land will be divvied up again is the point. The assembly of the Lord is going to return. There's restoration on the horizon. But there will be none for these oppressors. There will be none for these workers of wickedness and evil who have devised plans against God's people. There will be nothing for them. Theirs is only merited judgment. And God will not bring them back and God will not give them any portion of the land. Just as the land was once allotted, when God delivered his people, when they're restored, it will happen again in this new covenant. 
And those who have devised against God's people, who have caused all of this to happen, will not share in any of it. I think we understand this. I think you understand it a little bit more fully. But maybe you do if we turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Can you turn there with me really quick? Ephesians 5, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Uh, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And read verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God has a plan to judge and to restore, but in that restoration, he is not bringing those people back. And as a New Testament people, as a people who understand a little bit more about what God is going to do and what he has done, as we look back on the cross, we need to understand that there is no room in God's economy, God's new economy, God's new covenant for a people who live in this covetous kind of way. God hasn't made it for it to be that way. In the new covenant, there's something that's going to happen, something that has happened that will remove that. Because in that, God takes out the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. There's regeneration. There's newness of life. There's newness of affection. There's newness of desire. And in this new covenant, this new assembly of the Lord, of course, covetous people don't inherit that because they've been made new. We've taken our sins to the foot of the cross. We've taken our sins to Christ. And we understand now that we are to live in a way that's cognizant of that. We're to live in a way that resembles that we understand what God has done in restoring his people, in bringing them back. Ephesians 5 even starts that way. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We understand that even our allotment is all by mercy. It's by grace. We've been there and done that. We've been Micah 2, 1 through 5, but we've been made new. And we aren't to go back to that. Those who live in that don't inherit God's kingdom. Those who live in that have no future inheritance. And God said so in Micah 2, and it's true for us now. God's people don't just advocate for justice, but they live justly. They've been given a new heart. We need to understand that as the church, we don't tolerate any kind of covetousness or abuse 
whether it's of God's people or anyone else. In the newness of life that we've been given, we speak out against those things. We stand up for oppressed peoples. And we do so on behalf of God because we speak the truth in love. But all that advocacy and all those claims mean absolutely nothing if you don't live a just life. If you don't deny covetousness. If you don't deny lust. If you don't deny sin. If you don't deny the things that that offend and affront God. The oppressor's judgment was your judgment. And not because you're an oppressor, but because your heart is one of covetousness. Your heart is no different to that ancient dishonest land grabber. They covet and you covet. But in this new covenant, this new assembly, we have not only been asked to love our neighbor, but we've seen it. We've beheld it. Up on the cross, we saw love for God and love for neighbor fully displayed. And we saw it like we've never seen it displayed before. And that is the answer to that problem. That's the answer that that ushers in not only not more laws, but a new heart. The ability to actually live in God's ways. The ability to please God with a righteous life. That new heart makes no room for selfish desire, makes no room for covetous ways that lead to sin and death. Instead, that new heart devises righteousness and good works. When it rests, it it rests in good. It rests in thinking about love and service and blessing. It awaits the morning not to do evil, but to be salt and light. Not to do things in your own power, but to do things in the power of God's grace. And so then the question becomes, are you in that community? Are you in that community? Here's the one thing we can be guaranteed. God knows. God knows your heart. God sees your heart. God sees your desires. God sees your passions. God sees what you strive for. God sees what you scheme at night and what you work at in the, in the day. He knows all of it. And you don't have to be part of some oppressed, oppressive class in order for God to see that. Nor do you have to be part of some oppressive class for you to fall into the categories of sin that are going to be judged by God. Maybe you haven't been part of that because you just lack opportunity. That doesn't make you virtuous. It doesn't make you a good person. Lacking opportunity only means that it's in secret. But God sees that. God looks past that. What you ponder in bed, what you devise in secret, the discontentment of your life, God sees all of that. And judgment is for all who've grown dissatisfied with God. All who have grown weary of God's goodness because they think they have a better plan for their life. They think they know a better way than God does. Don't let this fool you. Yes, these oppressive people were judged, but so will you and I be, each and every single one of us. And in our hearts, If there is not a transformation that comes from the power of God and his gospel, we will not inherit the land. We will not inherit that new kingdom and we will not reign forever with Christ. 
If that's you today, you've been warned. And the, and the response is to repent and to believe. And if you're a believer and you struggle with that, you need to be reminded of the goodness that you've received in Christ Jesus. Everything that you've been afforded, the wealth of the immeasurable riches of his grace that have been afforded to you because of what he's done for you and you couldn't do for yourself. There will be an inheritance. God will restore his people. And God eventually would bring these people back. But there's a new covenant. There's a new agreement. And it's fully on God's term and it's fully up to God's work. And if you're living in light of that work, you will not let this sin abound in your heart. Where this, sin's, where this sin abounds, God is not present. That's what Micah is warning us about tonight. And so I ask you, are you in that community? Do you see this sin? Have you come to terms with that sin and have you taken it to Christ? And have you asked Christ to give you a heart of full satisfaction in God, who he is, his worth, what he's doing, and what he ultimately will do when he restores his people? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would use your word to grow your people, to help us to love you, to help us to live in light of the newness of life that we've been given in Jesus. There is not a covetous person that walks into your kingdom. And if that is the practice of our hearts, if that is who we are and what we identify with, then we need to come to terms with the cross. That that sin has been atoned for, that we have forgiveness in Christ, and that we have redemption only in his blood. For those of us who do walk in light of that, may you help us to fight this sin, Lord. May you help us to fight that sin that is present of old and still present today. That you would give us complete and full satisfaction in you. That we would not turn to other gods or even to our own passions or lusts, but that we would turn all of our worship and attention and focus to you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you because you do restore your people and you have made a way for us to be right with you. It's not by our own might or our own power. It's by our spirit. We thank you for this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.